Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. This is Joe. Glad to be with you uh, on this wonderful week in the history of mankind. So, where are we? Let's start with my standard disclaimer. As always, the views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They represent neither the views of my friends and neighbors, nor my family members, nor my uh, co-workers, nor my uh, employer, nor my uh, random acquaintances on social media, the people who like my posts, the people who don't like my posts. I could go on. But to put it shortly, to put it briefly, to put it concisely, uh, these are my opinions. Uh, as I've said in previous episodes, if you've heard them, um, I sometimes make reference to other people's ideas or writings or whatever, and I try to give credit where credit is due. If I am neglectful in this respect, please do reach out and let me know, and I will be glad to correct the record. Anyway, here we are. So it's been a, you know, it's been kind of a difficult week. I mean, from from a personal perspective, I won't get into this too much, but uh, uh, COVID is raging all around. Uh, once again, the Delta variant raising its ugly head. Um, uh, a family member of mine has been hospitalized with COVID and we've been grappling with that and it's been really difficult and, uh, prognosis hopefully is, is good. Uh, there's some good signs that he's recovering, but we shall see. Um, so suffice to say, um, my, message with regard to that this week is very simple and it is very similar to messages that I've um, put out in previous weeks and that is simply please please get vaccinated get vaccinated protect yourself protect your loved ones protect your neighbors get vaccinated and where appropriate, wear masks. I would suggest wearing masks for the time being in crowded places. I think it's a really good idea. Please take precautions. Do not allow yourself to um, be infected by this terrible disease, which has a um, very close family member in, in the hospital right now, and along with hundreds of thousands of other people who've been similarly affected. Um, I'm not trying to paint myself as, you know, uniquely troubled in this respect. Of course not. You know, this disease has killed over 600,000 people. 620,000 Americans have died. And we have, we have the ability to prevent this. All we need to do is grasp it. I myself have had the Pfizer vaccine, and I can tell you, after two doses of that, I felt fine, no problem. Uh, I've had other family members who have had the, um, other members of my family have had the Moderna vaccine as well. Uh, really no significant problems. Um, occasionally mild flu-like symptoms, but nothing to speak of. I mean, that was mostly after the second shot. Uh, my wife had some some minor issues, but nothing 
really major. She had the Moderna. I had the Pfizer. It was nothing. I had a sore arm for a couple of days. Big deal. As I said, you know, this member of my family is in the hospital right now. Um, (laughs) And honestly, you do not want to go through this. So don't take the chance and don't take the chance of spreading it to somebody else. Uh, That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, I've said it before, and you're probably not going to necessarily listen to me uh, or credit me on this topic, but um, I just want to emphasize, along with all the other voices that are emphasizing this, please protect yourself, protect your neighbors, protect your family, protect your loved ones. Anyway, um, what I'm going to do this week as I've done in previous weeks, <laughs> is knock the microphone. Um, I'm going to read my latest political rant, which you can find at big-green.net. If you look under political rants, um, you will find a recent rant posted on the 13th of August, 2021. It's entitled, Missed Us by That Much, Nuclear Brinksmanship. Um, <laughs> the title is a callback to, um, you're going to have to ask your mother about this. It's, there was a show in the 1960s called Get Smart. And it was a, it was a comedy show about a secret agent um, named Maxwell Smart, played by Don Adams. And, and he had a thing that he would say once in a while, um, which was basically, it was a punchline that was, Something like, miss me by that much. And it was used a million times. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's kind of the callback. I don't expect anybody to remember that. But that's, again, ask your mother or ask your grandmother. Um, anyway, here is the column for your listening pleasure. Missed us by that much. Nuclear brinksmanship. This week was the 76th anniversary of our having dropped the A-bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? What an insane thing to do. Though, to be frank, at that point in the war, our bombers bombers were laying waste to Japanese cities with conventional bombs, including a 1,000-plane raid on Tokyo. The commander liked the number. When we pay homage to those whose lives were lost or permanently altered by this episode, we do so in the knowledge that things went from bad to worse over the years that followed. The system we set up over the arc of the Cold War was aptly described as a doomsday machine. Whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg reviews this system in great detail in his recent book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. One thing that wasn't particularly surprising about Ellsberg's book was the fact that U.S. nuclear policy has always been based on the idea of first strike or first use. The reasoning is pretty simple. Launch an overwhelming strike that eliminates the enemy's ability to launch their own attack, partly by targeting their nuclear arsenal. The other component is that of blackmail, in essence. Do as we say, or we will blow up your cities. What Ellsberg makes clear is that their actual plan in the 1950s and early 60s was, in the event of a general war, to bomb both the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China to smithereens, even if the Chinese were not a party to the conflict. Of course, we know now, and they likely knew then, 
that any large exchange of H-bombs would result in virtual omnicide, but our war planners tried not to dwell on that notion. This insane war plan, really an annihilation plan, was built on the flimsiest platform back in the 1950s. Supposedly only the president could give the order to use nuclear weapons. That authority, according to Ellsberg, was delegated to regional commanders, either explicitly or implicitly. There was supposedly a letter from Eisenhower to his commanders setting out the authority, though no one seemed to be able to produce a copy. The plan relied on bombers back then in a very unreliable global communication system that could be disrupted by the weather. Later on, it was ICBMs with merv warheads. These are multiple independent H-bomb warheads in a single missile. But the game was the same. Use them or lose them. It got to such a point of madness that during the Carter administration, planners seriously considered a massive construction project out west to support the MX missile program. It was like an enormous shell game with thousands of miles of track, mobile launchers, bunkers, pools, fake missiles, all to throw the Soviets off. Suffice to say that we still live with the remnants of this madness. After a number of close calls, when the entire ramshackle enterprise almost came crashing down on all of us, we are still apparently willing to extend the life of these weapons yet another generation. The longer these weapons exist, the greater the danger that they will be used. If our leaders really want to keep us safe, they would take the lead in ending the nuclear standoff once and for all. Their failure to do so speaks volumes. Love you, Joe. That was my rant for the week. Essentially, Hiroshima and Nagasaki week, 76th anniversary. Oh boy. Um, yeah, that's, and, and again, you can read this or share it, like it, uh, dislike it, push back at big-green.net. Click the blog link and follow through to the um, blog site and You'll find a category um, named political rants. This should be the first one in line. In any case, uh, what else to say about this? Uh, Ellsberg's book is pretty good. Um, it's You have to understand he was a analyst with the Rand Corporation. Rand was a consultant to the Defense Department for decades, really still is. Uh, Rand, actually, the name Rand um, stands for Research and Development. <laughs> And he was um, part of a team that was looking at nuclear policy starting in the late 1950s. And this was at a time when most of the nuclear weapons were based on on bombers. Um, and he made the kind of sobering discovery along with some of his colleagues after, and he was, tasked with speaking to commanders, not only high-level commanders, but also commanders out in the field, like uh, squadron commanders out, you know, around the periphery of, of Asia. Um, in this era when there was no, as I said in the, in, the, um, in the blog post, there was no reliable global communication network, right? So planes in flight, like a squadron in flight, might lose contact with their home base. The base, the remote base, you know, somewhere, say, on Guam or whatever, 
uh, might lose contact with with Washington on a regular basis, just depending on the on the weather. You know, I <laughs> I, I know this from you know my in my youth, my dad used to be a ham radio operator, like an amateur radio operator. He had a 80-foot tower in, in our backyard, <laughs> which pleased my mother no end. And <laughs> and he used to contact people all over the world. Um, and, you know, it would be affected by <sighs> sunspots and weather and, you know, just depending on how, how things were going. And it's, again, this is like old-style radio signals. Um, no satellites, right? You know, this, this was, this was another era (laughs) and people didn't have cell phones, right? Ask your mother. So when Ellsberg was like speaking to these people, he was, he was trying to, Ellsberg was trying to work out to what extent control over the use of nuclear weapons was restricted to the president. Well, uh, was reserved just for the president because that was, the official policy, you know, the United States could not use nuclear weapons without it being the decision of the president. Okay, well, as a practical matter, because their war plan involved um, an escalatory use of nuclear weapons, a first use in the event of a conflict with the Soviet Union, (laughs) um, and because... A lot of times, communication between Washington and these remote bases along the periphery of Asia would be next to impossible. Um, <laughs> that this authority was delegated, it was effectively delegated to field commanders out on these bases, and and they did in fact refer to a a, a letter of authorization, a memo of authorization sent out to the commanders uh, by Eisenhower. This was the Eisenhower administration um, at the time. And again, this was like no one could produce the letter, <laughs> but they they all believed that it existed. So they all had the sense that this was the case, that they had the authority to escalate any conflict to a nuclear conflict, which would have effectively meant the end of the world. I, I mean, because we had hundreds of nuclear weapons at that time. We didn't have the tens of thousands we had later, but we had many hundreds of H-bombs and some of them just enormous weapons. Some of them, you know, tens of megatons of of uh, explosive power. I mean, like, you know, a thousand times the explosive power of all the bombs that went off in World War II. I mean, it's just kind of inconceivable, right? And again, our our strategy was to strike first, right? Because the idea was destroy the enemy's ability to strike the United States before they were able to get their assets in the air and on, their, on its way over here. It's a kind of conventional war idea applied to nuclear weapons, which is just an insane thing to do. So it's like a conventional war tactic applied to a nuclear war, which would be completely different from a conventional war. As as bad as a conventional war would be, obviously. But (laughs) just the, the idea of doing this with nuclear weapons was just insane. 
they had some idea of what the effects of fallout would be in Eastern Europe. And as I said in the blog post, um, Ellsberg had determined from his interviews that the plan was effectively, if there is a conflict with the Soviet Union, and if it is escalated to nuclear warfare, that it was an all-out war plan. That was the only plan. There was no plan B. It was destroy the entire Soviet Union with nuclear weapons and China with nuclear weapons. All of China to destroy every city in China with H-bombs, just automatically, if there's a conflict with the Soviet Union. And there were plenty of trigger points, right? Particularly Berlin, which was, if people remember this, when uh, Germany was divided, uh, Berlin was divided as well, except Berlin was deep in the uh, eastern zone, the Soviet-occupied zone of, of Germany. And, you know, they allowed the Western allies, essentially the United States, Britain, to have a zone, you know, in in Berlin, in West Berlin. Um, and there, that was always under dispute, right? There was a, there was a back and forth there. There was uh, threats to cut it off. And the idea that that would be somehow defended, access to West Berlin would be somehow defended in, by, with conventional means, um, during the 50s and 60s uh, was kind of ludicrous because um, it was being protected by, you know, crack divisions of the Soviet army. <laughs> I mean, there, was, there, there just wasn't the kind of firepower that you could possibly have a conventional war with the Soviets and have any hope of prevailing, right? Even if... It, even if Americans somehow thought it was worth fighting for. So this was a flashpoint for nuclear war. And it's just, it's a freaking miracle that it never happened. But I think not to get too far down, down the road with that idea, I wanted to just touch on the fact that another thing Ellsberg determined through his interviews with base commanders, you know, throughout the Asian Pacific area, um, was that it wasn't simply a delegation of authority to use nuclear weapons that went only to the senior commanders, like like a handful of senior commanders out in out in 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 the on the periphery of Asia. This actually went even further. I mean, in essence, <laughs> base commanders really had. They had the option to send planes off armed with nuclear weapons if certain conditions applied. You know, if, if there were certain conditions that made them think that there was a war underway, they could actually launch an attack on the Soviet Union. Um, given, like, disruption of, disruption of communications. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's insane to to read about this because it's, it's like, it's just a miracle that this didn't happen. It's an absolute miracle that this didn't happen. I mean, I could go into more detail about it, but it's, I really recommend that you, that you uh, find this book, you know, find it in the library or, or pick up a copy of it. Uh, you could probably find used copies of it out there. It's been around for a few years. Um, 
it's it's kind of fascinating and terrifying at the same time. I mean, when I saw it first, I thought it was going to be largely about the sort of false alarms that I know I've talked about on the show before. Um, a couple of incidents, um, particularly, I mean, certainly the Cuban Missile Crisis being one, but also um, a false alarm during the Carter administration, a false alarm during the Reagan administration, um, and I'm sure there are other incidents as well where it came very close to touching off a nuclear war just by accident, by some kind of technological failure. Um, because these are, you know, these are partly, particularly in the in the later years, uh, you know, from the 60s on forward, we're talking about ICBMs that have a flight time of, you know, 15 minutes or less. So these are all like hair trigger weapon systems that, you know, if <laughs> if your policy is still, and I think it was in those days, if your policy was still, you know, first strike, right? You know, uh, get them in the air before they get blown up, then you really only have a handful of minutes to decide whether or not to launch your weapons um, before the um your enemy's weapons um destroy your own weapons your own bases your own installations right so that sets up this sort of military uh, quandary you know this this policy quandary where you're you're like okay well, I have 10 minutes to make this decision or else we're all going to be incinerated before we get a chance to use our weapons which is such an insane idea. I mean, <laughs> Carl Sagan back in the day had the metaphor of, he had suggested the metaphor of uh, the Cold War standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union being like two men in a, facing each other in a room awash with gasoline, and each one has a pack of matches. And, you know, they're threatening to strike the match. If either one strikes a match, they're, they're both incinerated. That's that's basically the reality we lived with, except that that room is populated by the entire population of the earth. It's a very, you know, it's a very troubling reality, and it's really a miracle that we're all here. <laughs> it's just it's just a miracle that we live through that period. We're still in danger because we still have these weapons. And they're still kind of on a hair trigger. Uh, that thing I talked about briefly in the um, in the blog post um, during the Carter administration, I actually remember this happening um, in the mid-Carter administration, I think maybe the last two years of the Carter administration, they were really seriously considering setting up this system of tracks out in in the southwest of the United States um, so that they could move they could move missiles around on these kind of motorized platforms but not mobile launch platforms but really just train cars essentially that would carry a missile in them concealed to you know um, concealed bunkers um, fortified bunkers that sort of thing they would have fake missiles. They would have 
fake shelters, you know, they, they, they made it so that they'd have like reflecting ponds and things like that. They made, they were trying to design it so that there was always a quandary as to where the weapons were at any given time, because they considered that a strategic advantage, right? If the Soviets didn't know where, you know, they, they would have to guess where, <laughs> where the weapons were uh, in order to destroy them on a first strike. Uh, which is just, it's like such an insane thing. And that was going to literally cost hundreds of billions of dollars to build this. It was going to be like the biggest engineering enterprise in the history of humankind to build this ridiculous system that they, even they eventually realized was not worth spending the money on because they already had a system like that, right? They already had a system where they could move, um, nuclear missiles around without being detected um, always have, you know, a question in the minds of, of the Soviets as to where our, where our resources were. We had Trident submarines <laughs> with, you know, merved Trident missiles um, that had, I think the Trident missiles had something like maybe four or six independently targeted warheads on each missile. I know that we had some that were like, I think, the, I don't know if the MX was merved, but these are again, multiple independent reentry vehicles. So one missile goes up into, you know, the exosphere or however high they, they fly. And then it releases a bunch of independent reentry vehicles that are essentially nuclear missiles, nuclear weapons that find their way independently to to different targets. And I think the thing that didn't make much sense about this MX missile idea that was floated during the Carter administration was there were so many missiles already. There were so many armaments. Um, there was such a level of overkill on the part of the Soviets and the United States that it really didn't matter you know, if you hid some of the weapons somewhere, they could essentially pulverize every single inch of the country. <laughs> I mean, they can just like destroy everything because they had thousands and thousands of these things, thousands of H-bombs. And we did too. I remember in the 1980s, there was a, uh, I think it was a PBS program. It was called... Um, I think it was simply called War. Uh, it was by the his historian Gwyn Dyer. And I remember at the time he was uh, part of it, one episode of it, he was in in Moscow reporting and he was pointing at different uh, defense installations and buildings and significant buildings in Moscow and saying, okay, well, this, you know, this has an H-bomb, this building has an H-bomb targeted on it. And this one probably has two targeted on it because that's like a, a military installation. And this one over here, it's just like pointing to buildings in an immediate vicinity. <laughs> so it's like literally like a dozen H-bombs <laughs> targeted on this one area of Moscow, which would have just been, it would have been completely and utterly obliterated by one, Right. And it's the same thing with, with the Soviets. I mean, I'm sure um, 
I've said this, I think, be- previously in previous episodes of this show. Um, I live in Utica, New York. Um, we had defense industries here, like a lot of towns. Obviously, the military-industrial complex, uh, which Eisenhower wanted to call the military-industrial-congressional complex, um, distributed resources um, liberally through all 435 districts of of Congress, of the House of Representatives, and ours was certainly one. Ours ours didn't miss the uh, didn't miss the dole on that one, and so we had a base here. We had a base in the city of Rome, uh, Griffiths Air Base. We had defense plants in Utica and in in the surrounding area. Uh, there is a uh, there used to be a General Electric plant right up the street from where I live. Uh, there was a Bendix plant right up the street from where I live. Uh, there were there was a Chicago pneumatic plant. They used to do defense contracts. We had defense contractors in over in New Hartford where I grew up. I mean, it was these. This was you know public knowledge that these were defense assets, and they probably had you know H bombs targeted on them, right? Because they had enough to assign different weapons to just about every single plant that would have contributed to the war effort, right? Because of the insane logic of mutual annihilation, (laughs) mutual assured annihilation, you know, we would have just been blown off the face of the earth. And it's just a miracle that it didn't happen. Anyone my age, you know, and older or, or even somewhat younger, grew up with this, right? We grew up under the cloud of the mushroom cloud, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and it, you know, it's it kind of affected our view of the world, really. It affected our sense of, you know, what our futures were like. I mean, I didn't really feel like I had much to plan for when I was a kid because it just felt like this could all blow up at any time. And that's that's just the way... That's the way life was, right? I mean, we <laughs> we grew up with uh, kind of a bad attitude, I think, some of us. Those who thought about it, anyway. Not everybody thought about it. Not everybody took it seriously. <sighs> so what else do I have to say about this? Well, I don't know. Um, I would say take a look at Ellsberg's book. Uh, look through it. There's a lot more in there that I didn't get into. He was somewhat instrumental in in getting the president and the um, the administration, the subsequent administration, and actually the Kennedy administration, to, to change the strategy from automatically destroying all of China and all of the Soviet Union in the event of a nuclear war and sort of being a little bit more targeted and nuanced in it, <laughs> just destroying parts of it, you know, and having a sort of go-to position. Um but it was, it isn't exactly the sort of thing that inspires confidence. <laughs> I mean, it's still insane. Any nuclear war plan is just completely insane. There's just no other way to describe it. And I think, you know, the, the real keystone point that he makes in this book is the estimate of the number of, of killed in a nuclear exchange that he wrestled out of the Pentagon. 
Um, they weren't really into doing estimates, but apparently they had done some internal estimates on how many people would be killed. And I think at the time that he had asked for it, this was in the early sixties, they had something, they had said something like 800 million people would die, you know, right away. And he was just appalled by that. <laughs> and rightfully so. I mean, we're really talking about, you know, a hundred holocausts or more. Um, and that was a conservative estimate. It was really not taking into account the number of people who would die from fallout and from other sort of follow-on effects of having blown up the entire world. So, yeah, miracle that we're still here. Uh, my takeaway from this particularly is we should do everything we can to stop them from continuing this. In other words, we need an international effort to not only reduce the number of nuclear weapons, but to actually eliminate this class of weapons instead of building another generation, which is what we are doing right now. We are investing billions and billions of dollars building a new generation of highly destabilizing nuclear weapons, including so-called bunker buster weapons that could be resorted to quite easily because these are low yield weapons that may be very tempting for a field commander to use because it's basically the same explosive power as some of our larger conventional weapons. And so that transition becomes blurred. And uh, once you start using nuclear weapons of any size, you know, all bets are off. (laughs) So uh, we're heading into a very dangerous period once again. And, you know, there's there's signs of, you know, great power conflict sort of brewing, you know. Just listen to the rhetoric. Listen to the rhetoric about China. Listen to the rhetoric about Russia, right? This is still a problem. You know, don't want don't to let this one go. Anyway, that's all I got for this week. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message when you visit anchor.fm slash strange sound. You'll find the means of doing so right there. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. The um, handle for the, um, the show is at strange sound pod. You can also reach out to me by going to big-green.net and clicking on the contact link. You will find other ways to get in touch with me. I would really like to hear from you out there if you're listening to this. Uh, if you're listening to this, <laughs> be happy to hear from you. Be happy to hear any pushback. If you want to, you know, make any comments, um, if a minute of feedback is not enough, I encourage you to, um, record a voice message and either send it to me or tweet it at me or, you know, post it somewhere where I can find it. Um, there's different ways to get in contact with me, as I said, so you can do that. Um, I'd be glad to play it on the show as long as it isn't uh, obscene or insulting in some way that would offend people who might be listening. Um, In any case, glad to turn this into a conversation. I hope you have a very good week and that you remain safe and well and all goes well with you. And I hope to talk to you very soon. 
Thanks again for listening. Take care out there. We'll see you soon.